Good, I'd like to ask for your attention, some thoughts on what we're doing. For, for many of you, the retreat is coming to the close in uh, tomorrow, the day after. Some of you will be, many of you will be traveling apparently on Friday morning. Um, so basically tomorrow will be our last uh, whole day together. Thinking of endings brings on a whole world and it's maybe a moment to recall some of the, the tools of our trade as meditators. Um, as the weeks have elapsed and we've moved for some of you several times through the Satipatthanas uh, with the shift of emphasis I hope it has emerged that meditation is more than a technique, more than a method, more than one particular way of being with your mind. I hope that you take away this from uh, this few weeks here, uh, that you're basically engaging in a relationship and the main task is to make your mind a friend of yours, to be a good cook to your king. Um, if you forget anything else, uh, everything else actually, please do not forget this one. Buddhist meditation has many facets and aspects and um, the Theravada tradition in the Visuddhimaka claims that there are 40 meditation uh, subjects. And it's easy to disprove this particular statement if uh, you look into the suttas and you will find many more subjects of meditation. Um, so meditation is something big. It's something that uh, has a variety of uh, approaches that are needed and you, you can't get it done with only one tool set or with with one particular technique. Um, there's an interesting guy in the <clears throat> in the world of cryptology, which I expect to be your favorite pastime. <laughs> in the world of cryptology, there's a guy called Bruce Schneer. He's God in this world. And <clears throat> Bruce Schneer makes some interesting statements about um, technology. And he says, if you think technology is going to solve your problems, then you do not understand the nature of technology. Worse, you do not understand the nature of your problems. Yeah? Which, <clears throat> if Buddhist meditation teachers would say such things, this would be to be expected, isn't it? We're kind of slightly technophobe guys who are more into feeling and pondering and not believing and this kind of thing. But if a guy who is into cryptology says such a statement, then uh, this has to be taken serious. If you apply that to you as a meditator, then if you think that a technique or a method is going to make you free or happy or whole, I'm afraid Bruce Schneer's dictum applies. Yeah. Uh, a, no such technology exists. And B, you have not understood the nature of the beast if you think that technology is going to do that for you. So let us ponder, what are the, what are the basics, what is, what is the craft? 
Satipatthana as orientation. Four channels of experience. On all four channels is perpetual broadcast. Any moment of your experience, so many things are happening. Thoughts arising, emotional background, strong or weak, is discernible. Pleasure, pleasure and displeasure uh, arising is feeling tone. Body sensations taking place any moment at a time. However boring your life is, however calm your mind is, uh, most of the time these are happening. You are still having a body in jhana, you know? even though the, the bodily aspect of your experience may have receded dramatically, it's still there. Yeah? Your jhana is not independent of your embodiment. Even if thinking has stopped temporarily, your mind's capacity to respond with discursive phenomena on the basis of sense input, whether that comes from outside or from inside, has not disappeared. Yeah? While it may be in temporal abeyance through a deep absorption, your fundamental nature is to think. Yeah? The things that touch us they give rise to pleasure and pain. The things that give rise to pleasure and pain, they trigger our way of trying to understand them. That starts with perception, it goes into thought, and it ends up with proliferation if we're not careful. The fact that this is the case cannot really be fundamentally altered. What can be fundamentally altered is the amount of energy that goes from thought to proliferation. While the latter former is indispensable, the latter is completely voluntary. But the nature of the mind is to think, it is to make sense of what it experiences. The nature of your brain, for example, is you may th think that your brain is about thinking, but most of your brain's job is the modulation of your body states. If your brain does a good job at that, you don't even notice this. You quietly start sweating if things heat up, or you quietly, you quietly start having feelings of hunger if your blood sugar level drops. All this you don't tend, tend to, need to think about. It just happens conveniently so, and it is the brain's way of telling you, as a, an embodied being, that you need to do something. Yeah? Take off a layer, put on a layer, get some food into your system. So much of our system is actually quite intelligent and it does things in the background without telling us. Now there is a part of our mind that is about trying to create meaning. We're trying to live meaningful lives and we're trying to understand things. That seems to go really deep. We're trying to relate others to find out about ourselves. That's a simple statement and yet the, the impact is very dramatic. It is in relating through others we find out about ourselves. We need others to understand how we function. The task of growing up, of becoming a human being, as the beautiful saying in Xhosa goes, this Ubuntu, this famous Ubuntu, before Ubuntu was a, an operating system, you know, it was a piece of African wisdom that we become human beings through other human beings, basically. There's many different interpretations to this one, but that's, that's the core. You can't do it on your own. 
your humanity is instilled into you through the presence and your ongoing relationship with other humans. It's others that make you yourself. This is true even if you think there is no wisdom in Africa and if you think that there is no wisdom in traditional cultures and there is um, there's just brain functions or neo-Darwinian <coughs> patterns, uh, you will find out that actually most of your learning happens in relationship. You need both stimulus, you need empowerment, and then you need a way to modulate feedback. Yeah. So there are many things that we can only learn with others. Speech, for example. We don't develop that. If there's nobody there to talk to us, if we don't hear anybody talk, and if not, nobody helps us to talk, then we won't learn it. It's clearly acquired. It's not inbuilt. Maybe grunting is inbuilt. Ahs and ors, yeah? the Vedana equivalents, they're there. With actually communication, uh, being able to do what ants do when they exchange stomach content, do that in a sort of different way with concepts which can evoke rather specific images in other people's heads. This is one of the most powerful ways of actually touching each other. Steven Pinker makes this example of describing the mating ritual of a particular type of octopus. Yeah? How the male approaches the female and if she tolerates being stroked over her head with one of, her, one of his eight tentacles, he then reaches into a pocket and hands over a piece of his sperm yeah, and slips it into a pocket with her and that he has changed color in the process. Which is quite a strong image, isn't it? If you think of a changed color octopus occurring and you have a fairly clear idea if he wants to stroke your head what's going to happen, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's a kind of strong image and we can invo I can invoke that with the help of Steven Pinker's example. I can invoke that right now in your heads. So, should ever you meet an octopus who has changed color and make advances towards you, then you have a fairly clear idea how you want to go about this. So, this is a miracle to be able to do that. Yeah. Many things can go wrong in this process. We can lose each other, we can get stuck in our own perceptions, we cannot actually pick up the message. Um, we all have a little octopodian worlds where we can get lost in. But let's acknowledge we have tremendous power to reach each other, to touch each other, to influence each other, to learn from each other. If I think back of my 20 years, I've spent 20 years of my adult life, more than I have adult life anywhere else, I have spent in monastic communities, east and west, and if I am grateful for something, it is not for the awakened wisdom of a particular individual, although there have been people whose realizations uh, has tremendously helped me and whose kindness and whose teaching uh, is hopefully audible in everything I say. Um, it is their presence and their willingness to relate that has most touched me and that I'm thinking back with most gratitude. Just the willingness of human beings to practice together, what is not easy. And to show up time and again, to be there, to continue doing, even though it didn't seem to work last time, and to not give up. 
to go back to establishing the wholesomeness intention, even after the Rao, even after uh, an estrangement to local, uh, even after meeting with challenges, uh, coming back again, assembling, clearing the slate, confessing offenses, bowing to each other, and affirming the goodness of a shared aspiration and to continue with each other. You know, it's the guys who stay with you that really make the difference. That's my experience. It's the staying power of things. And that starts with being able to stay with something in your experience. That's the staying which really does the job. Staying with things seems to bring the insight about the process nature of it. It's not the spectacular state of samadhi that allowed you to penetrate through your self-view for a first time. That's wonderful. But you know, sparks fly relatively easy. It's relatively easy to have sparks fly when you meditate. But it's not so easy to turn these sparks into a lived wisdom, to turn it into a humble and lived wisdom, you know, beyond just the flying sparks. Translating the sparks you have had, translating them into a lived practical intelligence and wisdom that is willing to you know, take the life's challenges which are not always what we would want to have. So, tools, orienting, satipatthanas, four channels, on broadcast, every moment of my experience. Where is my attention? Can I identify these channels in my experience? Somatic, the body, sensation. Hedonic, feeling tone, pleasure, displeasure, indifference. The... Uh, channel of my mind, the mind states, the climate of my inner world. The verb there is to experience. It is not to experience pleasure or pain, but to experience uh, sadness, happiness, curiosity, boredom, loneliness, uh, enthusiasm, uh, inspiration, doubt. These are things, these are climates and states. They can be felt, they can be held independent of the objects they focus around. Usually they focus on objects. So if I'm sad, I'm sad about something. If I'm in doubt, then I'm in doubt about the specificity. If I am despondent, then I'm despondent in the situation I happen to be in. And learning to be with the state, irrespective of the object, learning to see that the, the proclivity of this mind to go into such states independent of these objects, because we have these states with a variety of objects. So it's probably not the object that is responsible for the state or for the proclivity of the mind to go into this state. Finally, Dhammanupasana, Channel 4, the discursive nature of mind, the cognitive dimension. So learning to simple shift when we notice my attention is caught up in one of these channels, and usually it's channel four, in the discursive, in the thinking about the thing, learning to just acknowledge, come back, come back. When the mind is quiet, to touch into these four channels and see what's going on there. Yeah? What is the nature of the beast? The three simple magical questions, what's happening now? just calling myself back into the present moment. 
How does it feel? Getting a relationship to the quality of this, becoming more specific. Rather than being driven by a particularly unrecognized state that has already begun to infiltrate my actions, my speech, my facial expression, I actually acknowledge what's there. How does it feel? And then the practice question, the third one, can I enter into conscious relationship with this particular quality? Can I meet it? Can I be with it? Can I explore it? Can I say no to it? Can I be with it without pushing it aside or without letting it take over? Those would be different ways of meeting this. Like you do in every relationship. I'm not asking you to do things you're not already knowing how to do. We all relate in this way with other beings. Now there are some beings in here which need uh, skilled relationships. Satipatthana is one way of relating to those inner beings in a skilled way. Acknowledging plan A and B. Plan A, my anchor, the, way, the area where I have established is easiest for me to be with the sensations of breathing. Affirming this as my task for a particular period of meditation and then applying myself to it. Returning there time and again. It is not important how easy this is. It is important, however easy or difficult it is, that you keep returning to this. The power is not whether you can do that faster or easier. The power from this comes through your willingness to stay with this. To, to come back one more time than you have strayed away. Plan B. Being fairly clear what you do when you find out that your mind is not doing what you have agreed with yourself. That would be useful. Clarifying this helps helps not to waste time. The next stage is you try to find out what's actually happening besides the noble determination to um, clear your task you will need to in some way respond what you actually meet. There's no way, no point in giving orders from high above to yourself when your sati is not there, when your mind is asleep or numb or lethargic, then you may need to take into account some skills to bring back vitality and life to your practice. So despite the apparent clarity of the suggestion of A and B and three questions and four satipatthanas, uh, you know, you will need skills to find out what is taking place in your mind and to meet this in realistic, in kind and in compassionate ways. So massaging your mindfulness awake in the morning when it wants to curl up and continue sleeping. Encouraging your mindfulness to stay with the body or with the breath in the evening when it is tired. Um, learning to return to centeredness when the mind is in this under this way of dissipating forces. These are useful skills. Learning how to struggle with thought. Learning how to distinguish which ones you need to struggle with and which ones you just need to let be. Learning tools to find out what propels the different thoughts. 
learning to know the difference when it is time to investigate and when it is time to just put aside. Many things need to put aside. Spare your powers of investigation for the big stuff. Don't sweat the small one. I guess the universe is telling me I should stop talking. Yeah. Good. So, let us practice.
Please uh, stretch your legs for a moment. Uh, I would like to um, request from you that you hold the retreat container. Some of the people here do uh, continue, and while you may have had to make arrangements for departure, and naturally the mind leans forward, uh, please hold this in the space of practice. So stick to the noble silence and stick to the uh, sittings and walkings. Uh, this is precious time. You've all worked hard, so make use of the ease that comes with this and put the stuff that comes up in your mind into a space, into a framework of um, insight and um, contemplative reflection. That would be my encouragement. I'll be seeing people this morning and I'll be here with you tonight for a talk and some sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.